Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. All right, hope everyone had a happy Hanukkah. So let's get into it. Let's bring you up to speed with Israel. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 3rd, 2023, as Israeli attacks move south, death toll grows. Bombardment pounds southern Gaza Strip. U.S. urges protecting Palestinian civilians. By Najib Jobain, Sami Magdi, and David Rising. Khan Yunus Gaza Strip. Israel pounded targets in the crowded southern half of the Gaza Strip on Saturday and ordered more neighborhoods designated for attack to evacuate, driving up the death toll, even as the United States and others urged it to do more to protect Gaza civilians a day after a truce collapsed. The prospect of further ceasefires in Gaza appears bleak as Israel recalled its negotiators and Hamas's deputy leader and said, uh, said any further swap uh, Gaza held hostages for Palestinian imprisoned, Palestinians imprisoned by Israel would only happen as part of ending the war. We will continue the war until we achieve all its goals, and it's impossible to achieve those goals without the ground operation, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in an address Saturday night. At least 200 Palestinians have been killed since the fighting resumed Friday morning following the week-long truce with the territory's ruling militant group Hamas, according to the health ministry in Gaza. Several multi-story residential buildings were hit on Saturday, engulfing neighborhoods and huge clouds of smoke. Separately, the ministry announced that the overall death toll in Gaza since the October 7th start of the latest Israel-Hamas war surpassed 15,200, a sharp jump from the previous count of more than 13,300 on November 20. The ministry does not differentiate between civilians and combatants, but it said Saturday that 70% of the dead were women and children. It also said more than 40,000 people had been wounded since the start of the war. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. Frankly, the scale of civilian suffering and the images and videos coming from Gaza are devastating, Vice President Kamala Harris told reporters at the COP28 climate conference in Dubai. Appeals from the U.S., Israel's closest ally, came after blistering air and ground attacks in the first weeks of the war devastated large areas of northern Gaza, killing thousands of Palestinians and displacing hundreds of thousands. After the attacks and the Israeli orders for, for Gazans to evacuate to the south, some 2 million Palestinians, almost the entire population of Gaza, are now crammed into the territory's southern half. The Israeli military said Saturday that it hit more than 400 Hamas targets across Gaza over the last day, including more than 50 strikes in the city of Khan Yunus and surrounding areas in the south. Palestinian Red Crescent spokesman Mahmoud Basel told broadcaster Al Jazeera that there were more than 300 martyrs in Gaza City's uh, Shujaya neighborhood and that homes are flattened. Israel's military said it killed Hamas's Shujaya Battalion commander, but gave no details. Residents could not be reached. In northern Gaza, an airstrike flattened a building hosting displaced families in the urban refugee camp of Jabalia on the outskirts of Gaza City. The strike on the multi-story building left dozens of dozens dead or wounded, said residents Hamze Obeid and Amal Radwan. There was a loud bang and then the building turned into a pile of rubble, Obeid said. Associated Press video showed smoke rising as men, some in sandals, picked their way over debris. 
the Israeli military confirmed it was operating in Jabalia and said it had found and destroyed Hamas tunnels in the surrounding area. And a powerful strike hit a cluster of multi-story buildings in Hamad City, a Qatari-funded housing development on the outskirts of Khan Yunus. Smoke engulfed the complex. There was no immediate word on casualties. Where is it safe? I swear to God, no one knows where we are going, as Zoher Al-Ray, who said his family received a recorded message saying their buildings should be evacuated. Also in the South, at least nine people, including three children, were killed in a strike on a house in Deir al-Bala, according to the hospital where bodies were taken. Meanwhile, Palestinian militant groups in Gaza said they fired a barrage of rockets on southern Israel. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, an Israeli army spokesperson, said Hamas had launched more than 250 since the ceasefire ended. There were no immediate reports of injury. While the resumption of fight, with the resumption of fighting, the Israeli military have published an online map carving up the Gaza Strip into hundreds of numbered parcels and asked residents to familiarize themselves with the number of their location ahead of evacuation warnings. On Saturday, the military used the map for the first time, listing more than two dozen parcel numbers in areas around Gaza City in the north and east of Khan Yunus. Separately, the military dropped leaflets with evacuation orders over towns east of Khan Yunus. One Khan Yunus resident said a neighbor received a call from the Israeli army warning that houses in the area would be hit and everyone should leave. We told them, we have nothing here. Why do you want to strike it? Said the resident, Hitmad al-Qidra. They eventually left and al-Qidra said the house was destroyed. The maps and leaflets generated panic and confusion, especially in the crowded south. Unable to go to northern Gaza or neighboring Egypt, their only escape is to move around within the 85-square-mile area. There is no place to go, said Imad Hajar, who fled with his wife and three children from the north a month ago to Khan Yunus. They expelled us from the north, and now they are pushing us to leave the south. Israel says it targets Hamas operatives and blames civilian casualties on the militants, accusing them of operating in residential neighborhoods. It claims to have killed thousands of militants without providing evidence. Israel says 77 of soldiers have been killed in northern Gaza. Also Saturday, the Palestinian Red, Palestinian Red Crescent said it had received aid trucks through the Rafah crossing, the first convoy since the fighting resumed. Meanwhile, Harris said in a meeting with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi that under no circumstances would the United States permit the forced relocation of Palestinians from Gaza or the West Bank, the besiegement of Gaza, or the redrawing of its borders, according to a U.S. summary of the meeting. The October 7 attack by Hamas and other militants killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians in southern Israel, and about 240 people were taken captive, according to the Israeli government. The renewed hostilities have heightened concerns for 137 hostages who, according to the Israeli military, are still held by Hamas and other militants after 105 were freed during the truce. For families of remaining hostages, the truce's collapse was a blow to hopes that their loved ones could be the, uh, the next one out. A 70-year-old woman held by Hamas was declared dead on Saturday, according to her kibbutz, bringing the total number of known dead hostages to eight. At a rally of tens of thousands in Tel Aviv, released hostages called for the rest to be freed. 
in a video address, Yafa Adar85 spoke up specifically for children being held, saying, I want to see them now, not when I'm in a coffin. During the truce, Israel freed 240 Palestinians from its prisons. Most of those released by both sides were women and youths. That was as Israeli attacks moved south, death toll grows by Najib Jobain, Sami Magdi, and David Rising. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, December 3rd, 2023, Jobain, Magdi, and Rising write for the Associated Press. Jobain reported from Khan Yunus, Magdi from Cairo, and Rising from Bangkok. AP writer Julia Frankel in Jerusalem contributed to this report. Here's a couple from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 6, 2023. Israeli extremists in West Bank lose U.S. visas. Washington punishes settlers who attack Palestinians. The ban also applies to some on the other side, by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The Biden administration on Tuesday announced it was banning dozens of Jewish-Israeli settlers from traveling to the U.S. because of their uh, involvement in brutal attacks on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and at driving people from their homes and taking away their land. Extremist settlers suspected of violence who already have U.S. visas will find them to be canceled, and any applying now for a visa will be denied, U.S. officials said. The measure is punitive. Many settlers have family in the U.S. and highly valued highly value having a visa for travel there. The settlers' attacks are unacceptable, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken said in making the announcement Tuesday. We have underscored to the Israeli government the need to do more to hold accountable extremist settlers who have committed violent attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank, Blinken said in a statement. U.S. officials said they were taking action because Israel has largely failed to arrest, prosecute, or punish settlers who have burned Palestinian homes and olive groves, stolen their sheep, and shot members of Palestinian families. The politically powerful settler bloc is part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government. The Palestinian Authority, which nominally governs the West Bank, said 260 Palestinians have been killed there since October 7 in various attacks. A number of West Bank Palestinians who have engaged in violence against Israelis will also be subject to the visa ban, U.S. officials said. The number is smaller because Israel usually arrests Palestinian offenders while ignoring the Jewish settlers guilty of similar crimes, U.S. officials said. Palestinians regard the West Bank as part of a future independent state. But settlers also lay claim to the land and have constructed communities across the West Bank, chopping it up into a non-contiguous pieces that would make a cohesive Palestinian state next to impossible. The settlements are considered illegal under international law. In Israel, initial reaction to the visa ban was angry. Benny Gantz, a former opposition politician and now member of the War Cabinet, said at a news conference that the majority of settlers in the West Bank were law-abiding people and that the violence was only the work of a group of extremists. Even before the October 7 attacks in southern Israel by the Hamas militant group, which touched off the now two-month-old war in the Gaza Strip, Palestinians in the occupied West Bank were being terrorized by settlers. At the same time, the Israeli army was mounting numerous raids in the West Bank, killing dozens of Palestinians, some civilians, and others whom Israel claimed to be militants from various groups, such as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It was the deadliest period for Palestinians since the Second Intifada, or uprising, which began in 2000. Israeli and Palestinian human rights groups say 
The most insidious West Bank violence comes from the settlers who act as vigilante mobs with impunity, often under the protection of Israeli soldiers. U.S. officials have referred to the settlers' actions in the West Bank as Jewish terrorism. They say they are confident they have enough evidence to choose which settlers to ban, even though they have not faced an Israeli court. Stability in the West Bank is essential, the officials said, to prevent the current war from spreading beyond Gaza. U.S. authorities will begin issuing the bans Tuesday, and more will be coming in the coming days, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said. We expect ultimately this action will impact dozens of individuals and potentially their family members. Blinken and others have repeatedly urged the Netanyahu government to crack down on ramping settlers to no avail. Last week in Israel, Blinken told Netanyahu that the U.S. would take the visa restriction actions regardless of what the Israeli government does in response. What impact the move will have remains to be seen. Israeli civilian and military authorities have appeared largely impervious to U.S. entreaties to minimize civilian casualties in the war and to allow the entry into Gaza of food, medicine, water, and fuel. Blinken, Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III and Vice President Kamala Harris in recent days have repeatedly lamented the number of Palestinian deaths in Gaza and told Israel that its offensive launch this week is in the southern half of the Gaza Strip must not replicate the devastating of the barrage on the northern half. But the death toll in southern Gaza, especially around the city of Khan Yunus, is already similar to that of the first days of the northern offensive. Israel ordered Gaza to flee, Gaza to flee to the south for safety and is now attacking the south to where more than a million people have been displaced. Under U.S. pressure, Israel agreed to set up uh, deconfliction in uh, zones uh, or safe areas in which Palestinians can shelter. But the United Nations and other aid groups say those areas are vastly overcrowded, suffering without sufficient food or water and are not necessarily safe. Israel is also notifying Gazans of neighborhoods that will be bombed so that they might flee. But the notifications usually require receivers to have access to electricity or an internet connection to be effective, and few Gazans have either, UN officials said. Miller said that it was too soon to evaluate the civilian death toll in the south, but that Israel is not doing enough to ease the humanitarian siege. New focus, meanwhile, is being given to reports of rape and sexual violence committed by Hamas against Israeli women and girls. Hamas has said it did not use rape as a weapon of war, but testimony from witnesses is being gathered by the UN and Israel Israel, that describe numerous cases of sexual torture. Over the past few weeks, survivors and witnesses of the attacks have shared the horrific accounts of unimaginable cruelty, President Biden said Tuesday. Reports of women raped, repeatedly raped, and their bodies being mutilated while still alive, of women corpses being desecrated, Hamas terrorists inflicting as much pain and suffering on women and girls as possible, and then murdering them. It is appalling. Biden said Hamas's refusal to release a last batch of female hostages ages 20 to 39 and mostly civilian caused Friday's collapse of a fragile truce that had seen freedom for about 100 hostages and a surge in humanitarian aid for Gaza. Fighting immediately resumed. In addition to hostage-taking, hostage take, hostage, uh, hostage the Hamas attacks on October 7 
killed 1,200 Israelis and foreign nationals, mostly civilians, Israel said, and Israeli bombardment of the densely populated Gaza enclave has killed at least 16,000 people, according to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry. That's Israeli extremists in West Bank lose U.S. visas by Tracy Wilkinson. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 6, 2023. Right, here is actually a follow-up article. From the, also from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 6, 2023, Biden decries report, reported rapes of Israeli women by Hamas. President speaks out, saying the world cannot ignore the appalling sexual violence by militants from the Associated Press. Boston. President Biden on Tuesday forcefully denounced the reported rape of uh, and other sexual violence against Israeli girls and women by Hamas militants during the October 7 attack on Israel, calling on the world to condemn such conduct without equivocation and without exception. Speaking at a campaign fundraiser in Boston, Biden noted that in recent weeks, female survivors and witnesses to the attacks have shared horrific accounts of unimaginable cruelty. Reports of women raped, repeatedly raped, and their bodies being mutilated while still alive, of women corpses being desecrated, Hamas terrorists inflicting as much pain and suffering on women and girls as possible, and then murdering them, Biden said, it is appalling. Israel has said it is investigating several cases of sexual assault and rape carried out during Hamas's cross-border attack. Witnesses and medical experts have said that Hamas militants committed a series of rapes and other attacks before killing the victims in the October 7 assault, though the extent of the sexual violence remains unknown. Experts have been piecing together evidence in recent weeks in a case that is complicated because there are no known victims to testify in, and forensic evidence is limited. Biden's comments came as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government has sought to put greater focus on the sexual violence it says Hamas committed during the October 7 attack. At least 1,200 people were killed on Israeli soil and 240 others were taken hostage, according to Israel. Some recently released hostages have shared testimonies of abuse and sexual violence during the time in the Gaza Strip. Hamas has denied that its militants committed sexual assaults. Netanyahu railed against the lack of international response during a news conference on Tuesday evening. I say to the women's rights organizations, to the human rights organizations, you've heard of the rape of Israeli women, horrible atrocities, sexual mutilation. Where the hell are you? asked Netanyahu. Israel hosted a special event at the United Nations on Monday where former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat of New York, and former Meta Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg were among those who criticized what they called a global failure to support women who they said were raped and in some cases killed. The comments from Biden came a day after White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre called the alleged allegations reprehensible. Jean-Pierre, who underscored that she was speaking on the president's behalf, was responding to a query about comments by Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, during a CNN interview in which she responded to a question about rape by Palestinian militants by saying, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. 15,000 Palestinians have been killed. Israel's bombardment and ground attacks in Gaza have killed more than 15,800 people, according to the health ministry, in the Palestinian territory controlled by Hamas, which Israel has vowed to destroy. 
Jayapal later issued a statement clarifying that she unequivocally condemns Hamas's use of rape and sexual violence as an act of war. As a senator, Biden was the author of the Violence Against Women Act, which was signed into law in 1994. He referenced his work on the issue as a lawmaker as he spoke out against the allegation of sexual violence by Hamas. The world can't just look away at what's going on, Biden told donors. He added, it's on all of us, government, international organizations, civil society, and businesses to forcefully condemn the sexual violence of Hamas terrorists without equivocation. That was Biden to Christ reported rapes of Israeli women by Hamas from the Associated Press. Out of the World section, out of the, uh, the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 6, 2023. All right, back to this one. From the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 10, 2023. Israel keeps up bombing, including in safe zones. Word comes that Washington approved the sale of tank ammunition to its ally. By Wafa Shurafa and Basim Maru. Dear al-Bala Gaza Strip, Israel's military pushed ahead with its punishing air and ground offensive in Gaza on Saturday, bolstered by a U.S. veto derailing U.N. Security Council efforts to end the war and word that an emergency sale of $106 million worth of tank ammunition has been approved by Washington. Unable to leave Gaza, a territory 25 miles long by about 7 miles wide, more than 2 million Palestinians faced more bombardments Saturday, including in areas that Israel has de had described as safe zones. The sale of nearly 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition was announced a day after the U.S. voted a United Nations Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, a measure that had wide international support. The U.S. said Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken determined that an emergency exists in the national uh, interest requiring the immediate sale, meaning it bypasses congressional review. Such a determination is rare. Gaza residents are being told to move like human pinballs, ricocheting between ever smaller slivers of the South without any of the basics for survival, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the council before the vote. The Israeli military said Saturday that its forces fought and killed Hamas militants and found weapons inside a school in Shujaya, a densely populated neighborhood of Gaza City. It said soldiers discovered a tunnel shaft in the same neighborhood where they found an elevator and in a separate incident, militants shot at troops from a UN-run school in the northern town of Beit Hanan. A day after Israel confirmed it was rounding up Palestinian men for interrogation, some told the Associated Press that they had been badly treated. Osama Ula said Israeli forces bound him and others with zip ties beat them for several days and gave them little water to drink. Another man, Ahmad Nimer Salman, showed his marked and swollen hands from the zip ties. He said his 17-year-old son Amjad was still being held. They used to ask us, are you with Hamas? We said no. Then they would slap us or kick us, he said. The Israeli military had no immediate comment when asked about the alleged abuse. With the war now in its third month, the Palestinian death toll in Gaza has surpassed 17,700. The majority women and children are, according to the health ministry, in the Hamas-controlled territory, whose counts do not differentiate between civilians and combatants. Two hospitals in, in central and southern Gaza received the bodies of a total of 133 people from Israeli bombings over the last 24 hours, the health ministry, ministry said midday Saturday. 
Israel holds Hamas responsible for civilian casualties, accusing the militant group of using people as human shields, and says it has made considerable efforts with evacuation orders to get civilians out of harm's way. It says 97 Israeli soldiers have died in the ground offensive after Hamas's deadly October 7 raid in Israel, in which the militants killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took about 240 hostages. Hamas said Saturday that it continued its rocket fire into Israel. In Gaza, residents reported airstrikes and shelling in the north and south, including the southern city of Rafah near the Egyptian border, one area where the Israeli army had ordered civilians to evacuate to. In a classroom there, knee-high children's tables were strewn with rubble. We now live in the Gaza Strip and are governed by the American law of the jungle. America has killed human rights, said Rafa resident Abu Yasser Khatib. The Palestinian people will not leave and do not want to leave. In northern Gaza, Israel has been trying to secure the military's hold in the face of heavy resistance from Hamas. Tens of thousands of residents are believed to remain despite evacuation orders six weeks after troops and tanks rolled in. More than 2,500 Palestinians have been killed since the December 1st collapse of a week-long truce. About two-thirds of them, women and children, are according to Gaza's health ministry. The truce saw hostages and Palestinian prisoners released, but more than 130 hostages are believed to remain in Gaza. On Saturday, a kibbutz that came under attack on October 7 said 25-year-old hostage Sahar Baruch had died in captivity. His captor said Baruch was killed during a failed rescue mission by the Israeli forces Friday. The Israeli military said Hamas killed him. With no further ceasefire in sight and a trickle of humanitarian aid reaching just a few parts of Gaza, residents reported severe food shortages. Nine of ten people in northern Gaza reported spending at least one full day and night without food, according to a World Food Program assessment during the truce. Two of three people in the South said the same. The WFP called the situation alarming. I am very hungry, said Mustafa Najjar, sheltering in a UN-run school in the devastated Jabalia refugee camp in the north. We are living on canned food and biscuits, and this is not sufficient. While adults can cope with hunger, it's extremely difficult and painful when you see your young son or daughter crying because they are hungry and you are not able to do anything, he said. Israelis who had been taken hostage also saw the food situation deteriorate. The recently freed Adina Moshi told a rally in Tel Aviv seeking the rapid return of all. We ended up eating only rice, said Moshi, who was held for 49 days. The rally speakers accused Israel's government of not doing enough to bring loved ones home. How can I sleep at night? How can I protect my daughter, said Eli Albag, father, Eli fa, uh, Albag, the father of 18-year-old hostage Lira Albag. On Saturday, 100 trucks carried, carrying unspecif- unspecified aid entered Gaza through the Rafah crossing with Egypt, said Wail Abu Omar, a spokesman for the Palestinian Crossings Authority. That is still well below the daily average before the war. Despite growing international pressure, the Biden administration remains opposed to an open-ended ceasefire, arguing that it would enable Hamas to continue posing a threat to Israel. 
Officials have expressed misgivings in recent days about the civilian death toll and dire humanitarian crisis, but have not pushed publicly for Israel to wind down the war. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant has argued that a ceasefire is handing a prize to Hamas, dismissing the hostages held in Gaza and signaling terror groups everywhere. Blinken continued to meet with counterparts from Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and elsewhere. From now on, humanity won't think the USA supports the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said in a speech Saturday. Despite restrictions on demonstrations, protesters at the climate summit in Dubai called for a ceasefire. Amid concerns about a wider conflict, Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen threatened to prevent any ship heading to Israeli ports from passing through the Red Sea and Arabian Sea until food and medicine can enter Gaza freely. A spokesman said all ships heading to Israel, no matter their nationality, will be targeted. Meanwhile, Lebanon's militant Hezbollah group claimed responsibility for nine attacks on Saturday, saying one targeted an Israeli post near the town of Metula. The Israeli army said one of its fighter jets struck a Hezbollah operational command center in Lebanon. In southern Gaza, thousands were on the run after what residents called a night of heavy gunfire and shelling. Israel has designated a narrow patch of southern coastline Muwasi as a safe zone. But Palestinians described overcrowding conditions with scant shelter and no toilets. They faced overnight temperature of around 52 degrees. That was Israel keeps up bombing, including in safe zones, by Wafa Sharafa and Pazem Moreau from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, December 10, 2023. Sharafa and Moreau write for the Associated Press. And also from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 10, 2023, U.S. is struggling to maintain support for Israel. Despite pledges to minimize civilian deaths in Gaza, the toll keeps rising by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. As Israel widens its war in Gaza, now in its third deadly month, Biden administration officials are struggling to shore up support for the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, even as it appears to ignore U.S. advice and Arab anger worldwide mouths. In New York, at the United Nations and in Washington, where a high-level delegation of six Arab states or entities held meetings with U.S. leaders calls for a ceasefire sound louder than ever Friday, leaving the U.S. standing all but alone in its opposition. That despite what U.S. officials now acknowledge is Israel's reticence to heed repeated pleas from President Biden and others in his administration to minimize civilian casualties as Israeli tanks, troops, and Arab power pound parts of southern Gaza where more than a million Palestinians fleeing the north had taken precarious refuge. In, most of his, in his most direct public criticism of Israel to date, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken said there was a gap between what Israel pledged to do and its actions in southern Gaza, which have steadily increased the death toll. As we stand here almost a week into this campaign into the south, it remains imperative that Israel put a premium on civilian protection, Blinken said Thursday, and there does remain a gap between the intent to protect civilians and the actual results that we're seeing on the ground. Blinken has made four trips to Israel since the October 7 attacks, 
that Hamas militants inflicted on southern Israel, killing about 1,200 mostly civilians, kidnapping an additional 240, and committing torture and other atrocities, according to Israeli officials. Israel's retaliation with the stated goal of destroying Hamas has leveled entire neighborhoods and killed more than 17,700 Palestinians, nearly three-quarters of them women and children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel said 97 of its soldiers have been killed in the fighting. Despite its, in its intense and often rancor rancorous talks with Netanyahu, the other senior Israeli officials, and other senior Israeli officials, Blinken, has been able to eke out only limited concessions. These have included the entry of some food, water, and small amounts of fuel into the besieged Gaza Strip. Israeli officials also agreed to a brief humanitarian pause, not a ceasefire, which Israel maintains Hamas would use to regroup, and for a week, fighting stopped, aid entered, and 100 hostages were freed. But it collapsed December 1st, with each side accusing the other of violating the agreement. The U.S. blames Hamas, saying it refused to release a last group of mostly young female hostages. Blinken's most re recent ask of the Israelis, delivered during meetings in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem the week before last, was that the devastation of the northern section of Gaza not be repeated with the offensive in the south, and that Israel fulfill the requirement of international law to take better precautions to avoid civilian casualties. His comments coincided with similar statements by, made by Vice President Kamala Harris uh, in Dubai and Se Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III, who warned that the killing of civilians only feeds militant groups. Biden telephoned Netanyahu on Thursday and stressed that much more assistance was urgently required in the Gaza Strip. He emphasized the critical need to protect civilians and separate them from Hamas through escape corridors and other means, the White House said. Israel and the U.S. also disagree on the ultimate goal of the war. Israel wants to eradicate Hamas, a task some experts believe to be impossible, and Washington advocates removing Hamas as a governing force in the Gaza Strip so that it no longer poses a threat. The U.S. government also insists that any permanent resolution must include an independent sovereign state for the Palestinians, which Netanyahu and many of his right-wing government reject. At the U.N. on Friday, the United Arab Emirates presented a resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The move came a day after U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoked a rarely used power by which he could convene the Security Council over an issue considered a threat to global peace. Israel objected, saying Guterres was taking the side of Hamas. There is no effective protection of civilians, Guterres told the Security Council on Friday. The people of Gaza are being told to move like human pinballs, ricocheting between ever smaller slivers of the south without any of the basics for survival. But nowhere in Gaza is safe. Thirteen countries in the 15-member body approved the measure while Britain abstained, but the U.S. vetoed it. It's not an issue about isolation, Robert Wood, deputy U.S. ambassador to the U.N. told reporters. We can't just snap our fingers and the conflict stops. In Washington, foreign ministries from countries belonging to the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation met with Blinken and other senior officials to again drive home their demand 
for a ceasefire in opposition to Israel's actions. Already, Israel has suffered a strategic defeat. Ayman Safadi, the foreign minister and deputy prime minister of Jordan, said in a conference at the Wilson Center, a think tank in Washington. Israel is defying the whole world, even the United States. And the United States, Safadi added, has not come to the right degree of saying enough. Jordan is a close ally of the United States and, until recently, only one of only two countries in the Arab world that recognized Israel. Many such ties are now strained and many may never return to their past cordiality. Both Israel and the United States say preserving civilian life in Gaza is complicated because Hamas operates from inside neighborhoods and public institutions. The Biden administration has fully endorsed Israel's right to defend itself, but has, ended, but has added nuance to that message as the war drags on. The question is how long Biden and his advisors can straddle their differences, particularly as Arab opposition grows, as well as domestic protest. That was U.S. struggling to maintain support for Israel by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times Nation section, Sunday, December 10, 2023. Here's now an opinion article on the Israel conflict from the Los Angeles Times opinion section, Monday, December 11, 2023. How Israel could have missed such detailed warnings of the Hamas attack by Brent Giannota. More than a year before Hamas killed some 1,200 residents of Israel and kidnapped more than 200, Israeli intelligence officers reportedly learned about plans for the attack in extraordinary detail but couldn't convince their leaders to take preventive action. How could a world-class security apparatus so badly underestimate one of its most dedicated adversaries? As leaders become more insular and closed-minded, the quality of their information and decisions deteriorates. When security is on the line, the results can be tragic. Benjamin Netanyahu's secretive, ideologically rigid leadership style in that way helped undermine Israel's security and imperil its people. He isn't the first such world leader who miscal whose miscalculations led to such a disaster. George W. Bush's administration was another infamous example. His cadre of top advisors on national security, including Vice President Dick Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, believed the country's priority was to counter threatening nation states by force if necessary. Although intelligence officials repeatedly briefed them and the president on the terrorist threats from a band of Islamic extremists known as Al Qaeda, that danger didn't match their idea of a top national security concern. Bush, therefore, failed to order expanded intelligence sharing among agencies or take other steps that experts believe could have helped prevent 9-11. The administration persisted in this misdiscretion uh, even after the attack, while Cheney and other advisors treated it as opportunity to pursue their predetermined priorities. The vice president famously shuttled to Langley, Virginia to strong-arm CIA analysts into producing reports that could suggest links between al-Qaeda and the troublesome regime in Iraq, leading to the disastrous invasion of that country. When I joined the CIA in 2010, instructors stressed to my class of new analysts that we must collect differing views before finalizing analytic decisions. Groupthink in business can cost money, but groupthink in national security can cost lives. 
agency veterans of the 9-11 era had recognized its fo uh, follies and revamped the training in an effort to prevent similar intelligence failures in the future. Netanyahu's current administration in Israel is the most right-wing in his country's history, populated with ideologues fixated on consolidating their power by expanding settlements in the West Bank. Bibi's Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Givir, is widely known for racist anti-Arab views, as one academic analysis noted, and supports Zionist terror organizations. Finance Minister Bezalel Sumatrich lives in a West Bank settlement deemed illegal under international law and has denied that Palestinians exist as a people. And Justice Minister Yarav Levin spearheaded a controversial attempt to prevent the judiciary from thwarting Netanyahu's plan to nullify Palestinian autonomy. Netanyahu and his deputies were committed to the idea that they could guarantee Israel's security even as they squeezed Palestinians into ever smaller enclaves with receding hopes of anything approaching statehood. They certainly weren't primed to consider a serious threat from Gaza when, it, when their government detected it last year. Israeli officials obtained a document they called Jericho Wall, which outlined a Hamas assault with rockets, drones, paragliders, and motorcycles targeting Israeli cities and bases around the Gaza Strip, the New York Times reported. But the military and intelligence leaders who saw the plan reportedly dismissed it as beyond Hamas's capability. Under Netanyahu, Israel's intelligence agencies have tended to elevate reports that affirm, that affirm his security credentials and suppress those that suggest weaknesses. The IDF's military intelligence directorate, Amman, also has too, too many analysts who are poorly integrated into the agency, preventing lower-level officers from connecting dots, according to Haifa University's Yuri Bar-Joseph. In the months before the attack, the Israel Defense Forces grounded three large observation balloons surveilling Gaza to bad weather, but never returned them to service. Hours before the attack, Israel detected warnings that produced a flurry of concern, but the intelligence directorate's commander, Major General Aaron Haliva, announced no major developments and continued his vacation on the coast. When a crisis befalls a small circle of closed-minded leaders, they tend to react with strategic and often self-destructive recklessness. Like Bush after 9-11, Netanyahu has not only denied being warned about the attack, but also launched a response that has brought international condemnation. Hard-headed governments regularly miscalculate the risks of their most provocative acts. In February 2022, Vladimir Putin decided, probably on his own, to invade Ukraine an operation he assumed would take 10 days, according to research by the Royal United Services Institute, a British security think tank. Almost two years later, nearly half a million troops from both sides are dead or injured, over 11 million people are displaced, and the International Criminal Court has issued a warrant for Putin's arrest. The modern U.S. national security apparatus is sluggish and imperfect, but it does take pains to collect vast arrays of input from intelligence assets, analysts, generals, uh, think tanks, congressional committees, and cabinet officials. I spent hundreds of hours in conference rooms with colleagues debating the meaning of reports and their associated threat levels, leaving no unpopular perspectives overlooked, overlooked uh, before, before sending an analysis to a superior. My fellow analysts and I have 
had the autonomy to identify threats and interpret them in our own words. Authoritarian leaders who broke no dissent by contrast often make world-changing decisions for the worse. Netanyahu's mismanagement of his country's security should shove his people into a multi-front regional war and lead to his ouster. The international community, and particularly the United States, could have acted to rein in his authoritarianism years ago and pressured him toward a less catastrophic outcome. Instead, we're contending with the fallout of another strongman's disastrous apprehension of his enemies. That was how Israel could have missed such detailed warnings of the Hamas attack by Brent Gianota from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 11, 2023. Brent Gianota is a writer based in Los Angeles and a former CIA political analyst. And from the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, December 12, 2023, Israel resists pressure to halt Gaza assault. Defense minister is unmoved by criticism over a Palestinian toll of military campaign in North and South by Joseph Federman, Wafa Sharafa, and Jack Jeffrey. Tel Aviv. Israel's defense minister on Monday pushed back against international calls to wrap up the country's military offensive in the Gaza Strip, saying the current phase of the operation against the militant group Hamas will take time. Yoav Gallant, a member of Israel's three-person war cabinet, remained unswayed by a growing chorus of criticism over the widespread damage and heavy civilian death toll caused by the two-month military campaign. The United Nations General Secretary General and leading Arab states have called for an immediate ceasefire. The U.S. has urged Israel to reduce civilian casualties, even though it has provided unwavering diplomatic and military support. Israel launched the campaign after Hamas militants stormed across its southern border on October 7, killing at least 1,200 people and kidnapping about 240 others. Two months of airstrikes, coupled with a fierce ground invasion, have resulted in the deaths of more than 17,000 Palestinians, according to health officials in the Hamas-run territory. They do not give a breakdown between civilians and combatants, but say that roughly two-thirds of the dead have been women and minors. Nearly 85% of the territory's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes. In In a briefing with the Associated Press, Gallant refused to commit to any firm deadlines, but he signaled that the current phase, characterized by heavy ground fighting backed by air power, could stretch on for weeks and that further military activity could could continue for months. We are going to defend ourselves. I am fighting for Israel's future, he said. Gallant said the next phase would be lower-intensity fighting against pockets of resistance and would require Israeli troops to maintain their freedom of operation. That's a sign the next phase has begun, he said. He spoke as Israeli forces battled militants in in and around the southern city of Khan Yunus, where the military opened a new line of attacks last week. Battles were still un- also still underway in parts of Gaza City and the urban Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, where large areas have been reduced to rubble and many thousands of civilians are still trapped by the fighting. Israel has pledged to keep fighting until it removes Hamas from power, dismantles its military capabilities, and gets back all of the hostages. It says Hamas still has 117 hostages and the remains of 20 people who died in captivity or during the initial attack.
More than 100 captives were freed last month during a week-long truce. On the desk in his spacious office, Galan keeps a framed picture of all the children taken hostage, but all, all but two are marked with small hearts, signaling their release from captivity. In central Gaza, an Israeli airstrike overnight flattened a residential building where about 80 people were staying in the Magazi refugee camp, residents said. Ahmed Kwara, a neighbor who was digging through the rubble for survivors, said he knew of only six people who made it out. The rest are under the building, he said, at a nearby hospital. Family members sobbed over the bodies of several of those killed in the strike. In Khan Yunus, Radwa Abu Fraye saw heavy Israeli airstrikes overnight around the European hospital where the UN humanitarian office says tens of thousands of people have sought shelter. She said one strike hit a home close to hers late Sunday. The building shook, she said. We thought it was the end and we would die. Gallant blamed Hamas for the heavy civilian death toll, saying the militant group maintains a network of tunnels underneath schools, streets, and hospitals. He claimed that Israel has inflicted heavy damage on Hamas, killing half of the group's battalion commanders and destroying many tunnels, command centers, and weapons facilities. Israeli officials have said about 7,000 militants, about a quarter of Hamas's fighting force, have been killed in the war and that 500 militants have been detained in Gaza in the last month. The claims could not be independently verified. Israel says 104 of its soldiers have been killed in the Gaza ground offensive. The result, Galant said, is that the northern Gaza Strip, Hamas has been, re- uh, has been reduced to islands of resistance acting on the whims of local commanders. In the southern Gaza, in southern Gaza, he said, the situation is different. They are still organized militarily, he said. Galan also said Israel has recovered hundreds of terabytes of information about Hamas from computers its troops have seized. Despite the reported battlefield setbacks, Hamas on Monday fired a barrage of rockets that set up sirens in Tel Aviv, where Galan's office and Israeli military headquarters are located. One person was lightly wounded, according to the Magdan David Adom Rescue Service. Israel's Channel 12 television broadcast video of a cratered road and damage to cars and buildings in a suburb. The UN humanitarian office, known as OCHA, O-C-H-A, described a harrowing journey through the battle zone in northern Gaza by a UN northern Ga- in northern Gaza by a UN and, and Red Crescent convoy over the weekend. It was the first delivery of medical supplies to the north in more than a week. Ocha said an ambulance and a UN truck were hit by gunfire on the way to Ali Arab Hospital to drop off the supplies. The convoy then evacuated 19 patients, but was delayed for inspections by Israeli forces on the way south. Ocha said one patient died and a paramedic was detained for hours, interrogated, and reportedly beaten. The fighting in Jabalia has trapped hundreds of staffers, patients, and displaced people inside hospitals, most of which are unable to function. Two staff members were killed over the weekend by clashes outside Al-Awda Hospital, OCHA said. Shelling and live ammunition hit the Yemen Al-Sayed Hospital, killing an unknown number of displaced people sheltering inside, it said. 
It did not say which side was uh, was behind the fire. <clears throat> With Israel allowing little aid to into Gaza and the UN largely unable to distribute it amid the fighting, Palestinians face severe shortages of food, water, and other basic goods. Israel said it will start conducting inspections of aid trucks Tuesday at its Karim Shalom crossing, a step meant to increase the amount of relief entering Gaza. Currently, Israel's Nitzana crossing is the only inspection point in operation. All trucks then sent enter from Egypt through the Rafah crossing. Aid workers, however, say they are largely unable to distribute aid beyond the Rafah area because of the fighting elsewhere. Israel has urged people to flee to what it says are safe areas in the south. The fighting in and around Khan Yunus has pushed tens of thousands toward the town of Rafah and other areas along the border with Egypt. Still, airstrikes have continued even in areas to which Palestinians are told to flee. A strike in Rafah early Monday heavily damaged a residential building, killing at least nine people, all but one of them women, according to Associated Press reported, uh, who, who, reporters who saw the bodies at the hospital. That was Israel resists pressure to halt Gaza assault by Joseph Fetterman, Rafa Sharafa, and Jack Jeffrey from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 12, 2023. Fetterman, Sharafa, and Jeffrey write for the Associated Press and reported from Tel Aviv, Dera Abala, Gaza Strip, and Cairo, respectively. And there's this. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 13, 2023, Biden takes a tougher stance on Israel's offensive. The indiscriminate bombing of Gaza is eroding international support, the president warns Netanyahu, by Colleen Long and Amir Madani. Washington. President Biden on Tuesday warned that Israel was losing international support because of its indiscriminate bombing of Gaza, speaking out in unusually strong language just hours before the United Nations demanded a humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's security can rest on the United States, but right now it has more than the United States. It has the European Union, it has Europe, it has most of the world supporting them, Biden said to donors during a fundraiser Tuesday. They're starting to lose that support by indiscriminate bombings that take place, he said. The president said he thought Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu understood, but he, so, but he wasn't so sure about the Israeli war cabinet. Israeli forces are carrying out punishing strikes across the Gaza Strip, crushing Palestinians in homes as the military presses ahead with an offensive that officials say could go on for weeks or months. With Israel and U.S. showing their sharpest public disagreement yet over the conduct and future of the war against the, Ham uh, the militant group Hamas, fighting in Gaza raged on Tuesday. The war, ignited by Hamas's October 7 attack into southern Israel, has already brought unprecedented death and destruction to the impoverished coastal enclave. Much of the northern Gaza is obliterated. Nearly 18,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to the health officials in the Hamas-run territory, and over 80% of the population of 2.3 million have been pushed from their homes. The healthcare system and humanitarian aid operations have collapsed in large parts of Gaza, and aid workers have warned of starvation and the spread of disease among displaced people in overcrowded shelters and tent camps. Gaza City and much of the surrounding north have already suffered widespread destruction 
from more than two months of bombardment. Amid the rubble, Israeli group uh, ground troops are still locked in heavy combat with Palestinian fighters more than six weeks after soldiers invaded the north. Fierce clashes continued Tuesday in Gaza City's Gaza City's Zaytown and Shajaya neighborhoods, as well as in Jabalia, a densely built urban refugee camp, residents said. Tens of thousands of Palestinians remain in the north, hollowed in homes or in UN schools turned shelters. As airstrikes and drones smashed houses, first responders were unable to reach anyone buried in the wreckage, residents said. It was massive, Mustafa Abu Taha, an agricultural worker, said of the ground of gunfire and explosions in Shajaya, where he lives. Amal Radwan, a woman sheltering in a school of Jabalia, said the situation was catastrophic as Israeli troops tried to advance deep into the district and unleashed heavy fire against fighters. Whenever the resistance hit them, they hit us very hard. It has become crazy. They strike everywhere with no regard to women or children, she said. Outside Gaza City, Israeli troops using a controlled detonation blew up a school run by UNRWA, the UN agency for Palestinian refugees in the northern town of Beit Hanon. Video posted online showed soldiers cheering as they watched the building collapse. UNRWA chief Philippe Lazzarini confirmed the demolition, calling it outrageous in a post Tuesday on X, formerly Twitter. There was no immediate comment from the military. On Saturday, it said militants opened fire from inside a, a UNRWA school in town. In a briefing with AP on Monday, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant signaled that the current phase of heavy ground fighting and airstrikes could stretch on for weeks and that further military activity could continue for months. Netanyahu has said the military will have to keep open-ended security control in Gaza after the war's end. Biden offered a harder-than-usual assessment of Israel's decisions since the October 7 attack by Hamas and the moves by its hardline government. Meanwhile, Biden's top national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, is heading to Israel this week to consult directly about timetables for ending major combat. The president also renewed his warnings that Israel should not make the same mistakes of overreaction that the U.S. did after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. He recounted a familiar anecdote referring to Netanyahu by a nickname by, describing, by inscribing on a photo of them taken decades ago. Baby, I don't agree with the damn thing you have to say. This time, the president added to his retelling of the story, that remains to be the case. The 2024 campaign fundraiser was part of a gathering of Jewish donors, many of whom attended a White House Hanukkah reception Monday. Biden's fundraisers are open to some reporters on condition that no audio or video be shared. His rhetoric to donors tracks his more candid and private messaging to Netanyahu on their frequent calls, according to two White House officials, which he reasserts U.S. support for Israel before pushing for Israel to do more to help civilians in Gaza. Israel has a tough decision to make. Bibi has a tough decision to make. There's no question about the need to take on Hamas. There's no question about that. None. Zero, Biden said. But, he added, of Israel's leader, I think he has to change his government. His government in Israel is making it very difficult. 
Biden specifically called out Itamar Ben-Givir, the, the leader of a far-right Israeli party and the minister of, nation, of nation's national security in Netanyahu's governing coalition, who opposes a two-state solution and has called for Israel to reassert control over all of the West Bank and Gaza. Ben Givur sits on Israel's security cabinet, but is not a member of the country's three-person war cabinet. The comments drew responses from both the Israeli military and also Hamas. We know to explain exactly how we operate with precision based on intelligence, even when we are operating on the ground, said Israeli military spokesperson Daniel Hagari. We know how to operate against the Hamas strongholds in such a way that best separates the uninvolved civilians from terrorism targets. As asked about Biden's comments, a senior Hamas official said in Beirut that the resistance and the steadfastness of the Palestinian people have made Biden understand that the Israeli military operation is a crazy act. The repercussions of the war will be catastrophic on the entity Israel and on the results of elections in which Biden might lose his seat in the White House. Osama Hamdan, a member of Hamas's political bureau, said in a news conference. During the fundraiser, Biden said that when he has warned Netanyahu of a loss of international support over the bombing, the Israeli leader has mentioned that the U.S. had carpet-bombed Germany in World War II and dropped the atomic bomb on Japan. That's why all these institutions were set up after World War II to see that it didn't happen again, he said. Don't make the same mistakes we made in 9-11. There is no reason we had to be in a war in Afghanistan. There's no reason we had to do so many things that we did. The UN General Assembly voted Tuesday on a non-binding resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, days after the US vetoed a similar measure at the Security Council. The UK abstained from the 13-1 vote, but France and Japan were among those supporting the call for a ceasefire. Only Security Council resolutions are legally binding under the terms of the International Bodies Charter. But the vote Tuesday sent a strong message of how the conflict was viewed around the world. Before Biden's comments at the fundraiser, Netanyahu said in a statement that he appreciated American support and that he'd received full backing for the ground incursion and blocking the international pressure to stop the war. Yes, there is disagreement about the day after Hamas and I Hope that we will reach agreement here as well. I would like to clarify my position. I will not allow Israel to repeat the mistake of Oslo. Gaza will neither will be neither Hamistan nor Fatistan. Speaking at a forum hosted by the Wall Street Journal before either leader's comments, Sullivan reiterated the Biden administration's position that it does not want to see Israel reoccupy Gaza or further shrink the already small Palestinian territory. The U.S. has repeatedly called for a return of the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority and the resumption of peace talks aimed at establishing a Palestinian state alongside Israel. Sullivan said he would also speak to Netanyahu about his recent comments that the Israel Defense Forces would maintain open-ended security control of Gaza after the war ends. I will have the opportunity to talk with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu about what exactly he has in mind with that comment, but because, uh, because that can be interpreted in, no, in a number of different ways, Sullivan said. But the U.S. position on this is clear. 
that was Biden takes a tougher stance on Israel's offensive by Kaleem Long and Amir Madani from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 13, 2023. Long and Madani write for the Associated Press. AP writers Will Weissert and Zeke Miller in Washington, uh, Bassem Moreau in Beirut, Sharafa in Deir Bala, Gaza Strip, Sami Magdi and Jack Jeffrey in Cairo, and Tia Goldenberg in Jerusalem contributed to this report. All right, on to other international news, starting with this one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times to Wednesday, December 13, 2023. Zelensky pleads his case for aid in Washington. Support appears in grave doubt as Republicans insist on linking the money to border security. But Lisa Mascara, Amir Madani, and Stephen Groves. Kiev, Ukraine. His country's future is at stake. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky used inspirational words, optimistic resolve, and a nod to Christmas in an appeal Tuesday to leaders in Congress for U.S. aid for his fighters in the war with Russia. But after hours of talks on Capitol Hill, additional American support appeared in grave danger as Zelensky arrived at the White House to huddle with President Biden. The U.S. has already provided Ukraine $111 billion since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his grinding invasion more than 21 months ago. But Republicans are insisting on linking any more money to strict U.S.-Mexico border security that changes cha um, security changes that Democrats decry. The White House is warning that if new money isn't provided by year's end, it will have swift consequences for Ukraine's capacity to hold its territory, let alone take back land captured by Russia. Biden, speaking at an early evening news conference with Zelensky, warned that failure by the United States to provide Ukraine further aid would embolden Putin and other aggressors on the world stage. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver on Ukraine, Biden said. We must, we must prove him wrong. Earlier, earlier meeting with Zelensky in the Oval Office, Biden called on Congress to do the right thing, to stand with Ukraine, and to stand up for freedom. He added, Congress needs to pass the supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday recess, before they give Putin the greatest Christmas gift they could possibly give him. Zelensky made his own case during his brief White House appearance with Biden and his private meetings with congressional leaders that Ukrainian forces have fought fiercely to push back the Russian invasion with the help of American and other Western allies, and it's no time for Ukraine's friends to step back. The fiber in is a fight for freedom, Zelensky repeatedly said in the meetings on Capitol Hill, according to lawmakers. Meanwhile, more than 130 senior lawmakers from across Europe signed a, le a letter urging U.S. lawmakers to continue their support for Ukraine. Flanked by Democratic Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer and Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Zelensky entered a private meeting with senators with a public bipartisan show of support and to some applause. But more than an hour later, few senators' minds appeared changed. Zelensky also visited the House leaders, including privately with new Speaker Mike Johnson, whose hard-right Republicans have been the most resistant to any deal. Johnson insisted afterward, we do want to do the right thing here. Zelensky sought to impress on senators that Ukraine could win the war against Russia, telling them he was drafting men in their 30s and 40s in a show of strength for the battle. In his trademark olive drab, he stood before a portrait of George Washington, history hanging behind him. 
to the House Democrats, he showcased his country's embrace of the West by pointing to the Christmas season, telling them it was the first year Ukraine would celebrate on December 25th rather than the day Russians marked the holiday. McConnell said Zelensky was inspirational and determined in the Senate meeting. But Republican senators exited the meeting unmoved from their position. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma said the emergency funding wouldn't gain GOP support unless it includes real, meaningful border reform. Biden pushed back uh, that history will, will judge harshly those who turn their backs on freedom's cause. The president quoted a Kremlin-aligned television host celebrating Republicans' recent block of aid as a job well done. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing, Biden said. Biden has been calling for a $110 billion U.S. aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs. He has expressed a willingness to engage with the Republicans as migrant crossings have hit record highs along the U.S.-Mexico border. But Democrats in his own party oppose proposals for expedited deportations and strict asylum standards as a return to Trump-era hostility toward migrants. Homeland Security uh, uh, Homeland uh, Secretary Alejandro N. Mayorkas visited the Capitol with talks but was not expected to be negotiating any deal. One chief Republican negotiator, negotiator Senator James Lanford, Lankford of Oklahoma, said there was nothing Zelensky could say during the visit with the senators to sway the outcome. Hey, pay attention to us, but not your own country? No, Lankford told reporters. Ahead of Zelensky's high-stakes meetings, the White House late Monday pointed to newly declassified intelligence that shows Ukraine has inflicted heavy losses on Russia in recent fighting along the Avic. Adivkanova Pavlika access, including 13,000 casualties and more than 220 combat vehicle losses. The Ukrainian holdout in the country's partly occupied east has been the center of some of the fiercest fighting in recent weeks. U.S. intelligence officials have determined that the Russians think if they can achieve a military deadlock through the winter, it will drain Western support for Ukraine and ultimately give Russia the advantage, despite the fact that Russians have sustained heavy losses and have been slowed by persistent shortages of trained personnel, munitions, and equipment. Russia has lost 87% of the military personnel it had, be, uh, it had before the Ukraine war including contracted and other ground forces, naval infantry, and airborne troops, according to a person familiar with a recently declassified intelligence analyst and granted anonymity to discuss it. The result is forcing Russia to rely on Soviet-era weaponry and has set back efforts to modernize its ground forces, the person said the analysis shows. Zelensky kicked off the quick visit to Washington on Monday warning in a speech at a defense university that Russia may be fighting in Ukraine, but its real target is freedom in America and around the world. During his meeting with Biden, he also sought to assure Congress and the American public that Ukraine was worth a substantial cost to the United States. Ukraine can win, said Zelensky. People need to be confident that freedom is secure. Of the nearly $110 billion national security package, $61.4 billion will go toward Ukraine, with about half to the U.S. Depart Defense Department to replenish weaponry it is supplying, and the other half for humanitarian assistance and to help the Ukrainian government function with the emergency responders 
public works, and other operations. The package includes an additional nearly $14 billion for Israel as it fights Hamas and $14 billion for U.S. border security. Other funds would go for national security needs to the Asia-Pacific region. Biden also announced Tuesday that he had approved an additional $200 million military aid package for Ukraine, including that latest package the U.S. now has about $4.4 billion remaining in weapons it can provide from department stockpiles. Meanwhile, on the battlefront, Ukraine came under a heavy attack from the air and from cyberspace on Tuesday, local officials said, as nearly 600 Russian shells, rockets, and other projectiles rained down on a southern region and unidentified hackers knocked out phone and internet services of the country's biggest telecom provider. Ukraine also claimed a successful hacker attack against Russia's national tax system. One person was killed and four were wounded during 24 hours of Russian bombardment of Ukraine's Kyrgyzstan region, said Oleksandr Prokudin, head of the Regional Military Administration. That was Zelensky pleads his case for aid in Washington by Lisa Mascaro, Amir Madani, and Stephen Groves from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times on uh, Wednesday, December 13, 2023. Mascaro, Madani, and Groves write for the uh, Associated Press. Other AP writers contributed to this report. And now to more local news. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 13, 2023. Jackie Goldberg re-elected to head LA's school board. Veteran public official will serve a final year as president after drama-free election by Howard Bloom. Jackie Goldberg has had quite a year on the Los Angeles Board of Education, blazing into public view by reading aloud a storybook about families with two dads during a time of LGBT-plus school protests and then standing up for Muslim and Jewish students after parents complained about bullying and classroom bias. The veteran public official was also on the Los Angeles City Council and the state legislature, will end her elected political career as school board president, helping to guide the nation's largest uh, school board, uh, largest school district. The board re-elected Goldberg by a 7-0 vote Tuesday. Goldberg, 79, who had been largely retired when she was persuaded to run for the school board in 2019, will serve a second of two consecutive one-year terms as president until 2024, her last year in office. She will continue to influence district policy even as voters in her district choose her replacement, starting with a primary in March. That election's outcome is destined to reshape the leadership of the nation's second-largest school system. Second largest school system. Goldberg's re-election as president transpired without rancor or controversy, even discussion, in advance of a year that could embody plenty of both. On one front, the district must deal with the end of state and federal COVID-19 aid that ballooned the budget to record levels. As a result of the pandemic, we finally saw what happens when we adequately fund public education, smaller class sizes, additional mental health support, and innovative programs to help struggling students, Goldberg said. Tragically, this year, we are losing millions in supplemental funding. That is why the long-term solution is structural change at the federal and state level to adequately, adequately tax corporations and the wealthy so that we can fully fund our schools. Student achievement has not yet rebounded to pre-pandemic levels. 
and even before the pandemic, academic performance ranged from disappointing to alarming. As I began my last year as board president, and indeed as an elected official, I am mindful of all that we have accomplished and all the work we have ahead of us, said Goldberg, who also served as the Los Angeles Board of Education president 40 years ago. We are working every day to bring attendance to pre-pandemic levels, to improve all students' literacy and math skills, and to make good on our commitment to special education, social-emotional learning, and so much more. Also likely to attract attention in the coming year will be culture clash debates and spillover from outside events, such as two that marked Goldberg's year. After the Israel-Hamas war began on October 11, L.A. Schools Superintendent Alberto Calvajo quickly signaled support for Israel, which prompted Palestinian families to protest that the district was being one-sided and implicitly empowering biased classroom discussions and bullying. Goldberg, who is Jewish, responded with a strong statement of support for all children and families who have been victimized, and Carvalho followed suit with a restatement of similar sentiments distributed district-wide. Goldberg achieved even more notice when she responded to tensions at Satakoy Elementary over a gay pride assembly. At a televised school board meeting, she read aloud from an oversized children's book, The Great Big Book of Families, which talked about different kinds of families, including those with two moms or two dads. A great book, she said, after reading it from cover to cover. I recommend it. Last week, she followed up by scheduling a staff presentation on sex and LGBTQ education. She said parents can inspect curriculum and opt out of, con- and opt of-, and opt of content, but they may not opt out of people, referring to the LGBTQ community. A year ago, Goldberg's rise to board president signaled a shift to priorities priorities of the teachers' union, which had strongly backed her campaign. During the year, this shift played out subtly and not always consistently. Board members declined to cut further into the school budget, the school police budget, for example, even though the teachers' union and allied students activists <laughs> called for eliminating funding for school police. Separately, in the lead up to a three-day strike in March. Teachers' union leaders denounced district leadership, including Goldberg, for releasing details of negotiations they deemed confidential. Goldberg explained that her intent had been only to recognize the good news that both sides were in contact with each other. Although the strike was not averted, all unions approved new contracts with pay raises. The teachers' union is pleased with the board majority's movement toward placing greater restrictions on when and where independent charter schools, much of which are non-union, will will be allowed to share space on district-operated campuses. Whether such restrictions will increase or diminish will be a major issue in the coming elections, where the biggest funders typically are charter school allies and, and the two largest unions, United Teachers Los Angeles and Local 99 of Service Employees International Union. Goldberg represents District 5, which covers most of Northeast LA Unified, including Eagle Rock, Glazelle Park, and Echo Park. To the southeast, her district includes the cities of Huntington Park, Maywood, and Southgate. Four candidates are vying to replace her. Also leaving the board next year will be George McKenna. His District 1 stretches from Koreatown to Mid-City to the west side and south to Baldwin Hills and south L.A. Eight candidates are running to win that seat. 
running for re-election will be Scott Schmerlson, who represents the West San Fernando Valley, and Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who represents the southern, southern part of the school system down to the L.A. Harbor. Both of them will face challengers. That was Jackie Goldberg re-elected to head L.A. School Board by Howard Bloom from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 13, 2023. All right, here's something else from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. Ex-porn stars released to private residence upheld by L.A. judge. Decision regarding Ron, Jeremy's in, Ron Jeremy infuriates many women who accuse him of assault by James Queeley. An L.A. County judge on Thursday reaffirmed a decision to release Ron Jeremy to a private residence because he is incompetent to stand trial for more than 30 counts of sexual assault, infuriating many of the women who have accused the former adult star of rape in recent years. Jeremy 870 has been held in state hospitals and the medical wing of the Twin Towers Correctional Facility in downtown L.A. since January when he was formally declared incompetent to stand trial due to a diagnosis of severe dementia. He was placed in a conservatorship in March, court records show. Last week, a judge in the Hollywood Mental Courthouse granted a petition from Jeremy's conservator to release him to a private residence due to his deteriorating health. Jeremy is essentially bedridden, according to an email reviewed by the Times. The conservator tried to have Jeremy housed in a secured perimeter dementia ward, but 10 private facilities declined to house him, according to an August court filing. Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson objected to Jeremy's release last week, and the district attorney's office filed a motion asking the judge to reconsider where Jeremy would be housed, which led to Thursday's hearing. Six of Jeremy's accusers gave terrible testimony inside the Hollywood Mental Health Courthouse Thursday, begging the Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Robert Harrison to reverse his decision. I have zero doubt that he is a danger to the public, dementia or not. He may have been deemed incompetent to stand trial. That does not mean he's not incompetent to reoffend, said one woman, identified in court only as Jane Doe 16, who accused Jeremy of raving her at the Rainbow Room Bar and Grill on the Sunset Strip. Harrison said Jeremy would be monitored at all times by a male caregiver at his new residence and would be barred from leaving the premises. But the judge said he could not keep Jeremy in jail any longer as he is incapable of being restored to competency and has not been convicted of a crime. It was not immediately clear when Jeremy would be released or where his residence would be located. Harrison ordered the Office of the Public Guardian, which is under the umbrella of the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, to investigate whether Jeremy qualifies for what is known as a Murphy conser Conservatorship. If placed under one, Jeremy could be housed in a state hospital. A report deeming Jeremy a danger to himself or others would be required to place him under such a conservatorship. But the judge warned that even with such a ruling, there may be a three-year wait list to gain access to a state hospital during which time Jeremy would have to remain in the undisclosed private residence. Jeremy was initially charged with four counts of sexual assault in June 2020, but the number of allegations against him in L.A. and around the country quickly ballooned. By August of 2021, the disgraced porn king has been indicted on 34 counts of rape forcible oral copulation, and sexual battery involving allegations made by 23 women. Jeremy has denied all wrongdoing. 
that was ex-porn stars released to private residence upheld by L.A. judge by James Queeley from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December, December 2nd, 2023. And now we go to this one from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. Jewish professor is allowed to return to USC by Taryn Luna. USC professor John Strauss is allowed to return to campus as the university continues its investigation into his comments about Hamas during a student protest, according to his lawyer. Students captured his November 9 remarks on video, and the episode went viral on the internet. More than 7,000 people signed an online petition calling for USC to, deter to terminate Strauss, while nearly 21,000 signed onto an op op opposing petition to reinstate the Jewish professor. The incident and viral uproar that followed became a flashpoint for the clash between supporters of Israel and Palestinians in American academia. The backlash underscores the challenge universities face across the country as they try to referee altercations over the Israel-Hamas war on campus, raising questions about limitations on free speech and efforts to provide a safe environment. In an updated statement, USC said, all of the restrictions previously placed on Professor Strauss have now been lifted. Strauss, a professor of economics, came across students staging a walkout and protests calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. The students held a memorial for Palestinians killed in the Israel-Hamas war. He alleged that he heard slogans such as destroy Israel, which uh, students later disputed. In exchange with the protesters, Strauss said they were ignorant before going a step further. Hamas are murderers, said the 72-year-old professor said to the students. That's all they are. Everyone should be killed, and I hope they all are killed. The video, versions of which were manipulated online to remove the reference to Hamas and instead suggested that he hoped all Palestinians would be killed, prompted a swift response from the university. Strauss said he was told that he was placed on paid administrative leave barred from campus, and are longer allowed to teach on his undergraduate classes this, se this semester. He was allowed to continue to teach graduate-level students through Zoom classes. Several days later, the university walked back some, um, uh, some of the restrictions, and it was allowed to resume undergraduate classes online. His attorney, Samantha Harris, said USC told Strauss this week that he would be allowed to return to campus Saturday. Classes at USC concluded for the semester Friday. Final exams begin next week and run until winter break, which starts December 14. This is a big, this is a step in the right direction, Harris said in a statement. But he's still under investigation and facing potential discipline for his speech, which is both a violation of USC's own promises of free speech and an outrageous viewpoint discriminatory double standard in terms of how USC enforces its policies. That was Jewish Professor is Allowed to Return to USC by Taryn Luna from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. Times staff writer Matt Hamilton contributed to this report. All right, let's turn to some entertainment news now. And we have two little things from this uh, calendar section, the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 10th, 2023, under 50 Reasons to Sing in 2023 by August Brown, Keenan Drowhorn, and Susie Exposito and Mikhail Wood. Where do songs come from? For now, they come from us, from our needs, our wants, our regrets, our scorn. Next year, they might come from a box brought to near sentience by all the songs that came before. 
Here in descending order are our picks for the 50 best of 2023. And at number 30, there's Andrew Barth Feldman, Man Eater, a chilling remake of the Holland Oates hit from a breezy Jennifer Lawrence sex comedy. That's by M.W. And at number 9, we've got Doja Cat, Agura Hills. This year's scariest pop flirtation, Boys Be Mad That I Don't F Incels, Girls Hate Too, Gun to, uh, gun to Their Pigtail. And those two are both under 50 Reasons to Sing in 2023 by August Brown, Kenan Drauhorn, Susie Exposito, and Mikhail Wood. From the calendar session of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, December 10, 2023. And again from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, December 10, 2023, under the title of Leaps, Hooks in Top 20 Albums by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic, at number 12 is Bob Dylan, The Complete Badoken, 1978. Great year for fans of Live Dylan. Cat Power recreated his so-called Royal Albert Hall gig from 1966, the one where some dullard called him Judas for going electric, while the man himself was on the road playing unexpected covers and popping up unannounced at Farm Aid. Then there's this expanded reissue of his ebullient, if once reviled, late 70s uh, concert LP. Two complete shows in which you couldn't seem more psyched to have ordered his saxophonist to bring a flute. And that is under Leaps Hooks in the Top 20 Albums by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 10, 2023. We actually have a few more articles of tribute to Norman Lear. Uh, two of them are from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, December 11, 2023. This one is called Masterclass in Life with Lear. Son-in-law looks back at fame producer and writer's penchant for generosity, kindness, by Stephen Battaglia. Like many Hollywood people in Hollywood, Norman Lear was among those who could be counted on to make philanthropic contributions to his favorite causes. But the legendary producer and writer who died Tuesday at age 101 didn't give at the office. He didn't just give at the office. He had a reputation as a benefactor who did not require a plaque on a wall in return for his contributions. Dr. Jonathan Lapook, chief medical respondent for CBS News, has been married to Lear's daughter, Kate, since 1985. Over the years, he saw his father-in-law's pension for helping people with acts of generosity and kindness that were not publicized. The one story Lear did enjoy telling family members was an encounter years ago with a New York City cab driver. He was talking to her about her life, LaPook recalled in a phone interview. She was driving for years to put her kids through college and was finally putting the last one through. Norman said, well, what, what are you going to do now? And she said, I've got to drive a few more years because I like to go to college too. Lear told her, no, you're not. I'm putting you through college. While tuition payments were not always involved, such exchanges were not unusual for Lear. He loved learning about people, LaPook said. Lear, who turned out the groundbreaking, enduring TV hits All in the Family, Maud and the Jeffersons, thrived for years after many of his contemporaries who worked during the golden age of television did not. However, he did not forget them as friends, and LaPook said he was known for providing financial support to some, including a prominent Hollywood TV agent in his later years. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he was serendipitously picking up the tab for a lot of people, LaPook said. He was not a person who broadcast his generosity. He did a lot of it carefully so as not to embarrass people. 
It wasn't. It wasn't about being self-aggrandizing. But Pook noted how Lear freely gave his time and knowledge to people looking for guidance in their professional and personal endeavors. There's a warehouse where, with thousands of letters from people who are grateful for correspondence they had with him for advancing their careers or just giving them advice about their lives and their passions, he said. Becoming part of Lear's circle had other benefits. Sundays at the TV legend's Los Angeles home were often known as Lowe's Lears. A large group of guests were gathered in his home for a screening of two feature films, often with a meal in the middle. LaPook also remembered Lear's fatherly heroics when he was guest host of NBC's Saturday Night Live in 1976, the show's second season. A teenage Kate flew out to New York and was planted in the studio audience for a routine Lear used to warm up the crowds who attended tapings of his shows at Television City. Kate would be called up as a volunteer from the audience to tell a joke. She intentionally messed up and Lear feigned anger before letting everyone in on the gag. When it came time for the live show, SNL executive producer Lorne Michaels decided to cut the bit for time and instructed Lear to introduce a short film when, it came out, when he came out. But Lear ignored him and went ahead and did the bit with Kate. I think Lorne didn't talk to him for years, LaPook said. LaPook said Lear provided him with a lasting gift as well. After he married Kate, his father-in-law became one of his best friends. I had a master class in life, he said. LaPook was involved in Lear's medical care and even interviewed him for a 2021 segment on CBS News Sunday morning. The final question to Lear then in 98 was about death. It's the leaving that is the problem for me, Lear told LaPook. Going, who knows what's out there. It can't be all bad, but leaving, I can't think of any anything good about leaving. That was Masterclass in Life with Lear by Stephen Battaglio. And here is one more from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 12, 2023. TV legends support paves the way to empowerment. How Norman Lear helped give one writer and producer the courage to fully embrace my purpose by Gloria Caldron Killette. Writer and producer Gloria Caldron Killette worked closely with Norman Lear, developing the reboot of his groundbreaking 1975 show, One Day at a Time. Here, in her own words, she writes about her relationship with the TV icon. On April 30th, 19, uh, 2015, I had the privilege of meeting Norman Lear, then 95, an encounter forever etched in my memory. Sitting in the hallowed halls of Act 3 is Beverly Hills' office that is adorned with photographs of celebrities and world leaders, I felt the weight of history. As Norman walked in, however, he immediately treated me like an old friend, radiating warmth that instantly put me at ease. Feeling more comfortable in this meeting than in any meeting I'd ever had, and this was Norman freaking Lear, I, I shared my story, like it was a therapy session, and that of my Cuban immigrant parents who came to this country not knowing the language and learning English with the help of his television shows. Norman was touched. English as a second language for, for immigrant families was never how he thought of his shows, but here we were. As we delved into conversation, Norman broached the prospect of reimagining his 1975 show one day at a time. Hesitant, I voiced my, the vulnerability of my community, recognizing the intense scrutiny any Latino show faced from within. 
The weight of healing a consistently erased community rested on my shoulders as I keenly felt the collective eagerness for authentic representation born from years of being let down by on-screen portrayals. Each attempt seemed to crumble under the weight of expectations with a continent-sized community that uh, defied monolithic characterization. Norman acknowledged the challenge and, with the curiosity of a child, asked, how could we fix that? He was genuinely asking me. This genius, this titan, was seeking my guidance. What? I told him, I on honestly, that I could just speak for myself and my family. I could tell that story. I suggested we focus on the specificity of my family, conceding the impossibility of speaking for all Latinos. He nodded, reinforcing his commitment by stating, Well, let's do that then. Like it was the simplest and most obvious thing in the world. Let's do that, then. He expressed curiosity about my mother, and I immediately drew a comparison I had been making my whole life. Well, think Rita Moreno. I began, but before I could finish, Norman jumped in. I know Rita. We should call her. This moment reflected the generosity he had, willing to use his impressive Rolodex to help a girl he just met. When I mentioned Gloria Estevan as my dream choice for the theme song, he replied with that hesitation, I know Gloria, too. I'll call her. His unwavering support and willingness to leverage his connections empowered me. He was like a magical genie in a white hat. This marked the beginning of a transformative journey. Paired with a, an accomplished Emmy-winning showrunner, Mike Royce, whom Norman believed would be a perfect fit, we formed a bond that transcended the professional. Norman and Mike became more than collaborators. They became my protectors, mentors, and family. Over the next four years, through 46 episodes, and in the numerous awards and accolades, Norman Lear became a cherished presence in my life. The last time I saw him was at a Hollywood Health and Society retreat, wheeled in by his trusty executive assistant, Cindy. As he stood to greet the room, his eyes met mine, and his face lit up with a familiar smile. Gloria, he exclaimed, and I rushed to embrace him. How are you, Norman? I inquired, to which he replied, better for having seen you, a sentiment he had shared with many, but one that always rang true and sincere. Our years together were nothing short of magical. Under the shelter of his love, I found the courage to fully embrace my purpose. Norman's infectious laughter served as a validating beacon. If the man who essentially invented television found joy in my work, I must be on the right path. Norman Lear had an unparalleled love for stories, people, and the universe, universal human experience. His passion for building bridges through storytelling fueled him for an impressive 101 years. Norman was also a man of priorities, always answering calls from his children, regardless of the circumstances. I believe when we were pitching the show to Ted Sarandos at Netflix, he received one such call. A loud ring broke the preamble banter we were having as we sat to pitch the show. This can happen, especially with older folks who forget to turn off their ringers. But to our surprise, he didn't rush to shut down his phone. Instead, he calmly pulled the phone from his pocket, looked at who was calling, and said, Pardon me, everyone, this is my daughter. He then answered the phone. I couldn't believe it. He asked his daughter how she was doing and if she needed anything, and when it was clear her call wasn't urgent, he said, I'm in the middle of a pitch, sweetheart. Can I call you back? And she must have said yes because he hung up. And guess what? Nothing bad happened. Everything was fine. 
They were better than fun. We were able to do the pitch and, in fact, sold the show. It was a real lesson in priority. His family was always going to come first, no matter who he was talking to. I loved that because it meant mine could also come first, and that I didn't have to sacrifice home for work. His values were clear, and he lived with a purpose that surpassed any I had ever known. To say I loved him feels inadequate. Those who caution against meeting your heroes clearly never met Norman Lear. After shooting the pilot with my Cuban exile parents in the VIP section, I was overcome with emotion. Thank you for changing my life, Mr. Lear, I expressed, expecting a modest acknowledgement. However, true to his character, he deflected the praise. You would have gotten here, Gloria. I may have just saved you a little time. Oh, I wish for more moments like that. Moments that mend the heart and elevate those fortunate enough to experience them. Norman never said goodbye. Instead, true to his TV roots, he would say to be continued. Those were the last words he spoke to me. Preceding those were the simple yet profound words, I love you. Somehow, 101 years felt insufficient. I consider myself extremely, extraordinarily fortunate to have been a minuscule part of his world. Until our paths cross again, Norman, I am fueled to keep moving forward with your stellar example as my North Star, Familia Parasimpre, to be continued. That was TV Legend Support Paves the Way to Empowerment by Gloria Calderon Killet from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 12, 2023. All right, on to another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 12, 2023, on Becoming the Man Behind a Hollywood Giant. Jason Isaac's latest role looks past the Cary Grant mystique by Emily Zimler. Jason Isaac had an instinctive reaction when he was first approached to play Cary Grant in the ITV and Britbox limited series, Archie. I thought, F no, absolutely not, the British actor said, speaking in London in, in November. Over my own dead body, would I do this? Because who would want to play Cary Grant? It was a poison chalice up to the rim. But Isaacs, known for taking on complicated characters who exist in moral gray areas, eventually came around to the idea. He met with writer Jeff Pope and quickly understood a four-episode a four series wasn't a biopic. It wasn't even really about Grant or his character. It was about Archibald Archie Leach, the man behind the famous name and his relationships off-camera. Many times I sprint off in the opposite direction because things look like they're impossible to do, said Isaacs. But I recognize the instinct to reinvent yourself. And I really recognized, in a very personal way, that thing of thinking your life really begins when you have a child. So whatever the critical response to it was, that was something that made sense to me, and I jumped in. Pope began writing the series almost a decade ago when he connected with Grant's ex-wife, Diane Cannon. She had written a memoir about their marriage, 2011's Dear Carrie, My Life with Carrie Grant, which became the basis for the episodes. The first two episodes are now streaming. The final two arrive Thursday. The couple's daughter, Jennifer Grant, came on board as an executive producer. Isaacs is one of several actors who plays Grant over his lifetime, but he had to embody him from his late 30s through 82 when Grant died because of the story's scope. Dainton Anderson plays Grant as a child with Oakley Pendergast as teenage Grant and Katham Lynch as Grant in his 20s. 
It took a long time to find the right guy to play him, says Pope, who thought of Isaacs after seeing him in mess. What I thought he did brilliantly was we see him, we connect, and we hear him. We feel that he is Cary Grant, but that he's uh, playing the story. He doesn't play the caricature. Cannon, who was also an executive producer, says Isaacs was one of the, was the only one she wanted. For her, it wasn't about replicating Grant's iconic image. As an actor herself, she was looking for someone who understood Grant's many nuances. Jason wanted to know a lot about what wasn't in my book and about what wasn't in the script. And I did share some things, Cannon says. What I love about Jason's performance is his choices were so brilliant. He didn't have a false moment for me. Was it Carrie? No, but it was him. But what is his understanding of what Carrie was? And that was right on the nose. Isaacs, who was cast six months ahead of shooting, decided to accept the challenge. He and Pope traded ideas about the scripts. He spent time speaking with Cannon and Jennifer Grant, who gave him audio cassettes and videos from her childhood. He read all the biographies and watched all the movies. But it wasn't until Isaacs came across a recording of Grant giving an interview, which no one knew existed, that he locked onto Archie Leach. There are no recordings of him giving interviews, Isaac says. He's very, he very reluctantly would appear in public and do speeches. He turned down a million awards. It was all a character. I needed to find a recording of him to hear his real voice. I found a transcript of one and tracked down the person who had done it. I begged and proved I could be trustworthy. He played it to me, and it was a revelation. You could just hear a million colors that you don't hear when he's on screen. Physically, Isaacs wanted, wanted to invoke the actor's look and his broad transatlantic accent without resorting to mimicry. Like Grant, he walked bow-legged, and the hair and makeup team augmented Isaacs' hair, chin, and eyes with particular consideration for how he would age over the story. He wore a bespoke suit created by tailors on Savile Row, but Isaac says it would be ludicrous to actually try to be Grant on screen. There's enough of an indication so you don't go, well, that's insane, Isaac says, but it's mostly about the inner landscape. People will have to go along with me and go, okay, I'm going to imagine Cary Grant up there, and then I can show show them Archie Leach. The series, which also stars Laura Aikman as Cannon and Harriet Walter as Grant's mother, Elsie Leach, is non-linear and shifts between timelines. It focuses on Grant's marriage to Cannon and the birth of their daughter, but also reveals the truth is stranger than fiction tale of Grant reconnecting with his mother late in life. It portrays Grant as an imperfect, complicated man grappling with real demons, including a troubled childhood and an obsession with LSD. The only point in telling a story about someone whose life seems so perfect and shiny from the outside is to remind us all that nothing is ever what it seems, Isaac says, and that the wounds of childhood would stay open unless you make an effort to heal them. He wanted to make himself beloved. Not only did he not fix the hole inside it, it made it much bigger. Cannon adds, he had to create Cary Grant in order to just let go of all that fog of misery and abandonment and aloneness and feeling unloved. That's why he couldn't take on the responsibility of a family. 
Cannons offer negative memories of Grant stand in contrast to the public understanding of the actor. In one scene, which is true to life, Grant gives away her dog right after Cannon gives birth. It was a monstrous thing, Isaac says. It's a four-hour show, and he had an 82-year life, so we can't put everything in. That was an awful thing, but it's only one of them. Trust me. Isaac pauses and adds, I'm describing him like I judged him harshly. I don't. He suffered more than anybody else from his own worst instincts. He really was fragile. Although it was intense, Isaac says he looks for work when, it, when he can become fully immersed. He has a fear of being an actor who is this indulgent kind of show pony. He doesn't want to simply turn up and say the lines and leave. He likes stories and characters that require something from him, which is evident when you look at the vast array of roles he's done, both on screen and on the stage. Isaacs has often played villains, like Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter film franchise and Dr. Hunter Aloysius' Half Percy on Netflix's The OA, but mostly he just wants to be known as the guy who carries equipment, gets to know the crew, and brings some enthusiasm every day. One of the reasons I was attracted to acting was the instant community doing plays and arts festivals, he says. You lose that a bit when you're an actor. And if you're higher up on the call sheet and you have a trailer and get called to the set late, you lose that sense of we're all in this together. I love low-budget things. I love things that have skeleton crews and when and when you're on all when you're on set all day. While Isaacs has always commanded attention as a performer, he found himself in the zeitgeist when the OA created by Britt Marling and Zal Batmanji Melage debuted its first season in 2016. Although the Netflix series was canceled after its second season, Isaacs is hopeful it could eventually be revived. I'll start crying, he says when asked about the OA. There are some things that have ended and where I died and I know I won't be coming back. There are some things that are open-ended, so never say never. But with Brit and Zal, anything they wanted to do, I'd do it. In fact, we did go away a year ago with a camera for the weekend and make something for ourselves. I don't know if anyone will ever see it. We just like spending time together and telling stories. But Manbleed and Marling say that, that that project does in fact exist on a hard drive. But, Man, but, but Manbleed isn't sure it will ever be released. It was something the trio did because they like to collaborate. The whole cast of the OA was very special and I learned so much from Jason, but Manjali said, you have to have, you have to have people who are doing it not for, for a paycheck, but because they just want to do a good job. Marlene, who describes Isaac as actual heaven, says she likes working with him because of his commitment to the story he's telling. We would sometimes be in the edit in the edit and be like, something's not quite working, Marling says. And we'd be like, you know, just cut to Jason. Because in the moment, he's always telling the truth on his face. He's incapable of lying as an actor. Isaacs himself is honest and that there is there are acting jobs he does accept to make a living. But if acting wasn't his job, he says, it would it's what he would do as a hobby. It's deeply satisfying to him to be part of the storytelling club of minstrels. He can transform himself into something else which gives him relief from the difficulties of the world, and it can give viewers relief too. 
He wants to tell compelling stories, whether it's a complicated look at someone like Grant and Archie or an intimate relationship drama like his upcoming film, The Salt Hat. I just find people who I think have a great idea or a great story, and I follow them, I success. If it's a play done in a tent in a field, or if it's a giant movie, it doesn't really matter to me. And I hope that will never matter to me. That was On Becoming the Man Behind the Hollywood Giant by Emily Zemler, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 12, 2023. All right, let's wrap with this one. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 14, 2023, Levy put, is putting a unique spin on film music. In an exclusive interview, the scorer of Jackie, Zola, and Under the Skin discusses working with Jonathan Glazer and the process of The Zone of Interest by Tim Grieving. Once upon a time, Micah Levy said hello to the world through the hose of a vacuum cleaner. As a founder of the English pop group Mikachu and The Shapes, Levy strummed a tiny detuned thrift store guitar and sang fragmentary songs in which laptop samples collided with real industrial objects, like the vacuum that Levy would use to lower their voices and sort of sound satanic, they explained. It was definitely bad for me, Levy says, knocked off maybe a couple of years, but you know, all in the name of art. Levy, droll British non-binary, has carved out a fittingly outray music musical trajectory, going from the London underground, where Bjork and the Flaming Lips were among early fans, to true renegade credibility, is one of the most daring and, and sweet genre composers in film. Their latest achievement, the score for Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest in Theaters Friday, is both impossible to describe and inextricable from the film's morbid power. This despite the fact that there's very little of it in the movie. The vast majority of Zone, which documents the quotidian family of a German man who lives in an idyllic garden on the other side of the wall from Auschwitz, where he is Camp Commandant, has no score other than a few punctuations of an alien-sounding vocal effect. But the movie is bookended by Levy's contributions, opening in complete blackness and an oozing sound bath of warped voices and synthesizers, and concluding with a six-minute audio train ride through hell. He is not worried or frightened of anything, says Levy of Glazer, both a collaborator and a friend. It's sort of like, you've got an opportunity, don't F-waste it. Asked how he elicited this particular score from Levy, the director is an enigmatic as his film. I can never remember whether or how we start, Glazer says via email. It's really just an ongoing conversation, like taking a nice long walk together. Levy, 36, is in Los Angeles to do some limited promotion for the film and has just survived several post-screening Q&As, a nightmare for an introvert who doesn't love to gab. Levy isn't, isn't meek, per se, but they have the slightest nervous disposition of a bird caught in a house, absent-mindedly twirling their brown curls, and mostly avoiding eye contact. In a brown industrial work shirt, blue jeans, and thick black boots, Levy rolls a homemade cigarette following our interview like they earned a smoke break after a difficult shift. We meet in a small Hollywood, uh, in a, stu a small studio in West Hollywood, bustling with publicists and film crews and craft services. Levy, with their workwear outfit and Southern English accent, seems as out of place in the showbiz environment as Scarlett Johansson's bombshell alien did in the far reaches of Scotland in Under the Skin, 
Levy's film score debut. The musician suggests we escape to the unglamorous park across the street, where we sit on some dirty bleachers in the hot December sun as dogs chase frisbees and children babble on a nearby swing, swing set. Levy has always found comfort where most people are uncomfortable. Born to musicians, their mother was a cello teacher and their father Eric a pianist and respected scholar of Third Reich-era music. Levy grew up in the London suburb of Surrey, often feeling like an outsider. They played violin and attended the prestigious Purcell School as a kid, turning up on the first day in a football uniform complete with shin guards. Levy watched Disney movies and rom-coms growing up, and even tried writing fake romantic orchestral music, but as a teenager got turned on to the eccentricities of Capital Beefheart and the Californian composer Harry Parch. A gay man who lived during the Great Depression, sometimes without a home, Parch broke ranks with the established pitch system prescribed in Western classical music. It's kind of like things that have been nipped and tucked in to fit the piano, Levy says, and he was looking for freedom. Parch was also a carpenter and built his own instruments, allowing him to express music outside of the 12 standard tones, a clever, a clear precursor of Levy's work. A lot of the music that I like, Levy says, the people who make it, there's something in their spirit and I resonate that I resonate with. Levy started making loops in the sequencer logic and got into London's grime electronica scene, DJing and making mixtapes. While studying composition at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, they decided to form a band. Mikachu was a Pokemon reference, and the shapes were Levy's Guildhall schoolmates, keyboardist Raisa Khan and drummer Mark Pell. Dropping out of university, Levy founded a, promote, a promoter in Matthew Herbert, an English electronic musician and producer who specialized in sampling everyday objects, and the band released their startling debut album, Jewelry, in 2009 to high praise. The Boston Globe declared Levy one of the brightest brains on the brink of pop, and the album led to festivals and tours as well as commissions from London orchestras. Was it pop, though? Levy claimed so at the time, but today it's a different matter. I was just being antagonistic, they say. I don't think it's, it is pop. Whatever it was, Levy was casually twisting the ears of both pop and classical and creating a sickly beautiful language of their own, one that caught the attention of fellow Brit Glazer. Originally a music video auteur for groups like Radiohead and Blur, Glazer had already directed 2000's Sexy Beast and 2004's Birth and was making his alien art house picture Under the Skin, his first movie and what would be nine, and what would be nine years. He wanted music by a newcomer. When Levy interviewed for the job, the 26-year-old felt that they had as good a chance of at being hired as the CEO of a bank. But I think that kind of helped me get the gig, Levy says, because I went in with no nerves. It was a re really life-changing experience. Soon audiences around the world heard a new universe, a wasp's nest of shivering strings and eerily sensual siren song. That announced, that announced a major arrival in film scoring. Levy followed Glazer's instructions to try to get inside this beautiful alien's head and growing heart, but in some ways they just wrote music that sounded good. A lot of the time when I'm making music, I'm just making music, Levy says. I'm not looking at any screen pictures or anything like that. John told me at that time, carry on making what you're into. 
In the meantime, Levy's otherworldly star rose. Chilean director Pablo Lorraine was a juror at the Venice Film Festival where Under the Skin premiered and was immediately smitten. He felt that if Levy had been born a few generations earlier, they would be in the record store next to Mendelssohn or Stravinsky, Lorraine told me in 2016. The filmmaker hired Levy for Jackie, his Natalie Portman-led biopic of Jacqueline Kennedy during the days after her husband's assassination, which Levy scored with a kind of drunken sweetness and sudden waves of grief, again tempering with pitch and strings bending on unison, bending in unison. The score earned an Oscar nomination and a Hollywood buzz, but Levy had been choosy, turning down offers to work with just a handful of iconoclastic filmmakers on mostly dark subjects. Folks, we're about to run out of time here. We will give you this article again in on a future show. So for everything that is happening with us Jews in the city, the state, Israel, and the nation, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, shalom and peace.